Hello, everyone, and welcome to Speaking with Joy, a podcast to fill your soul, challenge your mind, and make you brave. I'm your host, Joy Clarkson, and an evangelist for all things good, true, and beautiful. So make yourself a cup of tea, find somewhere comfortable, and let's dive in to this week's episode. I wish it need not have happened in my time, said Frodo. So do I, said Gandalf, and so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. Hello, friends, and welcome back to Speaking with Joy. I am speaking with you today from an abnormally quiet St. Andrews in Scotland. The university here, where of course I'm doing my PhD in speaking, three days ago said that there would be no more face-to-face classes and packed up all of its students who could leave um, from their halls and sent them home for the remainder of the semester. The grocery stores are picked through and there's no potatoes or pasta left and everyone is sitting quietly in their house. I, for one, have been in my house for the last three days and have watched Poirot and Miyazaki films and drunk more coffee than is good for me. And while this has been an oddly enjoyable, restful few days, it is not without its disorientation and its disruption and its fear. I know that my life is much like the rest of yours, where suddenly we've seen cancellations, disruptions, disappointment, and where fear has flickered onto our radar in ways that we would not have anticipated even just two weeks ago. I know for many of you that fear may be for an older relative or someone who has health issues, but it also may be the fear surrounding a sudden loss of job or of income. This is truly a global disruption, a global disorientation. And I just want you to know that whatever emotions you're feeling, um, do not belittle them uh, in the face of this large global thing. This really is truly a disruptive and a disorienting time. And it's very reasonable for you to feel any number of things from sad to confused to angry um, to afraid. And this week, as I've been trying to grapple with this strange season that we all find ourselves in, I found myself thinking back to a rather guilty desire of my young self to live through some kind of global catastrophe. I think this came out of the the fact that I read many heroic and noble books about people who lived through impossible times uh, with great virtue. I remember reading Lord of the Rings and stories about World War II or, or Narnia and thinking, I want to live through something difficult so I can be brave. Now, of course, now that I'm older, I've realized that in some ways that's um, a really foolish desire because living through terrible times is is actually wishing um, for suffering on yourself and on others. And so I don't wish that anymore. But I think the thing that I wanted in that wish was to know that I could be good and be brave even when life was difficult. And as I thought about it this week, I've realized that even though this is not what I imagined, this is not the scenario that I would have imagined as being my possibility for being brave and being loving. This is the time that we all get to exercise our bravery, the time we get to figure out what it means to live well in a very strange and difficult and disruptive time. And that's been an oddly empowering thing for me, um, to think about giving myself purpose in this time of thinking, this is my opportunity to think about others, 
to have a stiff upper lip, to be brave, and to live this season well. It is our chance to test our mettle, to show that we really do want to love our neighbors well, to take care of other people. When we look back in the stories of people who lived bravely through other times and think, oh, would I have done that? This is your chance to, to give it a go and to say that I did live well through this season. Now, if you'll permit me just a moment of being sanctimonious, let me encourage you all to stay home. I'm not worried about getting um, the virus, particularly for myself, except for the fact that I have asthma and it sounds dreadful. Um, but I'm staying home because I know that you can carry the virus to other people even if you don't present um, uh, symptoms. And because there's many people in my life that I love for whom this virus actually would be dangerous. People um, with autoimmune diseases, older people, um, people who have a history of diabetes, of heart problems, um, or of anything respiratory. So I'm staying home because I care about them, because I care about the doctors and nurses, who I know will probably soon be working overtime. I have friends right now in Spain um, who really are, they're saying that this really is overwhelming their medical system. So I'm staying home partially because I want to be one less carrier of the disease to other people, one less potential person to have to be in the hospitals right now, because I want to ease the burden on hospitals and give space and time for this to spread so that we might come up with with cures or creative solutions. And also because I care about all the people who can't stay home. Grocery workers and truck drivers and the people taking out our rubbish and keeping our cities running. They can't stay home. So I'm staying home so that I'm not one more person adding another factor of contagion and risk in the world. Now, I know that, that probably describes most of you. So now we're faced with the strange reality of hours upon hours weeks, perhaps, perhaps months, we don't know, of lots of time at home. And I know that this uh, feels a bit daunting because it feels a bit daunting for me. And so when I was thinking about one thing I could do in this season, aside from running groceries to my um, older friends at church and various other things like that, I thought that perhaps one thing I could do is to provide an hour of sanity with my podcast to the rest of you. So in the next few weeks, I will be posting more than usual. I actually already have a few interviews done. One of the great benefits of this is that some of my favorite people um, who are usually as busy as can be are home and willing to do podcasts. So I've been recording interviews with other people and recording some of my own. And I hope to post those here over the next few weeks um, so that we can create an hour of sanity and of beauty and of hope for you. Um, something that I hope to provide is a healthy, soulful escape from the constant focus um, on the news. I love, there's a passage in J.R.R. Tolkien's On Fairy Stories, where he talks about the benefits of escapism. And it's interesting because he wrote this during, right in the middle of World War II, uh, which was also when a lot of Lord of the Rings began to kind of foment in his mind and when he really started working on it in earnest. And uh, people said, what's the point of reading good books and, and thinking about music and all these things in the midst of a world war? We should have all of our effort, efforts fo focused on fighting and, you know, helping soldiers at home and all these things. Um, and, and I think in some ways, uh, that is always the question of culture and art. Why does it matter to think about these things, to enjoy other things in the midst of a dire world? Um, and there's this wonderful passage in it where he talks about escapism in, in the context of a man in prison. And he said, why should a man be scorned if finding himself in prison, he tries to get out and go home? 
or if, when he cannot do so, he thinks and talks about other topics than jailers and prison walls. The world outside has not become less real because the prisoner cannot see it. And this is kind of his answer to um, the good role of escapism. As we are all metaphorically trapped in, in the, the prison walls of catastrophe and illness and sickness, or more practically, actually caught in the four walls of our homes with our dear families who we love muchly and also get annoyed with, um, can we be blamed if we sometimes think about things outside of these walls? If in the face of sickness, we imagine what a world of health would be like? Actually, escapism in this sense, something that helps us remove our eyes from the jail bars and the walls of, a, of the jails that we find ourselves in, are actually, are, it's actually good, it's actually moral and, um, and worthwhile. And this is something that's really important for me, which is that when we look at evil in the world, when we feel um, distress about sadness and sickness, we actually need to have a sense of what is good to be offended at those things. And so focusing our eyes on good and true and beautiful things is not a waste of time. It's not um, denial. It helps us keep our souls and hope alive, having a fixed idea of goodness that we can, um, that we can desire and, and work towards, even in the midst of difficulties. So that's what I hope generally for this podcast, and particularly over the next few weeks, is to provide you with some holy and wholesome distraction. Now, the funny thing is, I planned this this week's episode weeks and weeks ago, and I have dallied over whether or not I should do it, because believe it or not, it is on art that was created in response to the medieval plagues. And that hardly seems like an escape um, from this current um, pandemic that we're experiencing. But I've decided to do it anyway this week because um, I think it will hearten and cheer you. And um, it's good, I think, also to place our own experiences in the context of history, to remember that we are not the first ones to experience fear and economic depressions and issues. And actually to look back and say, how did the brave people of different centuries deal with this? So I think you will enjoy that very much, but I promise you that the rest of the episodes will not be plague-centered. I also want to encourage you outside of my podcast that there are so many um, kind of unprecedented opportunities offered to us through this time. So places like the Met and the Vienna Orchestra and the Berlin Philharmonic are starting to live stream all of their concerts because people can't attend them. Um, also, all of these museums have opened up their doors and are doing virtual tours. And so I would just encourage you, there are lots of beautiful things to fill your soul with as you are in the midst of this strange season. And uh, when I put up the show notes for this, which will be eventually, um, I have no excuse not to because I'm, you know, in my house, I, I will put some links to some of the best opportunities that I've seen out there. I'll also try to be posting um, interesting thoughts and connecting with you all and hopeful things over Instagram and Patreon and Twitter and Facebook. This is a fun time to connect and I would love to hear how you're doing how your family is is weathering this strange season and what beautiful things you're putting into your heart as we wait this strange season out. So this gift of distraction and diversion to beautiful things is the gift that I have to give during this season. And so I hope it'll be one that will um, will enliven and, and give some beauty and delight in your days. And to all of you who are currently wrestling with the ramifications of all of this will mean for our world, in the future years. Um, I want you to know that you are heavy on my heart and um, that I will be praying for all of us that we will know 
how to face these unwished for days well, and um, that you will feel God's presence and that community will come around you and help in so much as they can. So that is the general announcement for the upcoming couple of weeks. I will be posting more. Um, as a preview, the next one I will post is an interview with Karen Swallow Pryor, um, the notorious Karen Swallow, Swallow Pryor on Twitter. And we are talking about virtue in sense and sensibility and literature. You will love it. It was delightful. Um, and that'll be coming up along with, eventually I'm doing a podcast with Shanti, and uh, who talked to me about R.S. Thomas last semester, and she will be talking about women poets that you should know from the 20th century. And um, many other things along the way. I hope that you will tune in, and I hope this will be a gift and a distraction to you all. So many blessings to you. I hope that you will have surprisingly good memories from this surprisingly strange season. And uh, without further ado, let me begin this week's episode on the medieval morality plays. Begin a treatise how the High Father of Heaven sendeth death to summon every creature to come and give account of their lives in this world. The chant you are listening to at the opening of this section is the Die Sire, or the Day of Wrath, one of the earliest chants of the Christian Church used through prayer throughout the day to remind Christians that someday they will die and be judged. The Church has always been mindful of our death as we await the resurrection, but no time more obviously so than in medieval Europe during the plagues. During this wild season, when sections of Europe lost up to 80% of their population, the Church was constantly faced and aware with the mortality of all people that we will all die and so we must make sense both of our lives in this world, our death, and the hope of a life to come. Out of this season of awareness of mortality came the morality plays, which will be the subject of today's discussion. These plays, which range from somber to silly to outright body nonsense, were made to teach their audiences how to reckon with the reality of death, to challenge them to live good lives, and to teach them to not be afraid. These works of art are not well known to modern audiences, but you'll be surprised to discover that they've actually shaped some of the best-loved works of literature and music in our modern world. Today we will explore the history of these fascinating works of theater, we'll press into one work in particular, The Everyman, and then we'll look at an example of a work of literature based on the medieval morality plays, none other than Harry Potter. These works help us face our own mortality, teaching us to live a good life so that we can die a good death, rooted in the hope of the resurrection. So first, let's explore the historical context that brought about um, the need to write the morality plays. Now, as I've already alluded to, the Black Death is kind of the, the impetus for what came to be known as um, the morality plays and many other forms of art that kind of dealt with death. The Black Death was a plague that started, we think, somewhere in Central or East Asia, and then was kind of passed into Europe around 13, somewhere, somewhere in the 1340s uh, through merchant ships in Italy, and then it kind of traveled through the Mediterranean basis, basin. Um, it's hard to calculate how many people it killed, 
um, but there is estimated that it killed between 30 to 60 percent of Europe's population which is just wild. That's up to six out of 10 um, people. But that's kind of as a medium as a whole. Uh, but of course, there are parts of Europe that were hit um, harder than others. So for instance, there are there are places in Italy where the towns um, that kept more detailed censuses, or however you say that word, they think it killed up to 80% of some of the populations. And this took hundreds of years to recover the population from. If you think about this, this killing off uh, 30 to 60% of Europe's general population and up to 80% of particular regions like Florence. Uh, it was a huge deal. Um, and I'm going to read you a passage from a historian called Philip Dylander, who wrote this in 2007. He says, the trend of research, of recent research, is pointing to a figure more like 45 to 50% out of Europe the European population dying in a four-year period. There's a fair amount of geographic variation. In the Mediterranean Europe, areas such as Italy, the south of France and Spain, where the plague ran for about four to five years um, consecutively, it was probably close to 75 to 80% of the population. Whereas in Germany and England, it was probably closer to 20%. So this wasn't um, kind of equally spread out. But either way, um, this was, it was apocalyptic. I'm sure they must have felt like it was the end of the world. And in many ways, it was the end of the world. It was the end of the way that they we're used to experiencing life. So if we think that right now we're experiencing apocalyptic, and in some ways it is, magnify that in your mind to a time period in which eight out of 10 adults might die from the plague in their, in their, um, in their town, which is just un unprecedented for us. We, we can't imagine uh, what that would have been like. And this actually precipitated a pastoral crisis because with these huge numbers of people dying quickly and, and, um, and even priests dying, there was this, this sudden pastoral crisis of how do we help people? How do we reach out to so many people when we can't be everywhere at once and where our priests are dying off? How do we help them address this widespread suffering they're experiencing and this widespread, widespread really what was a confrontation with mortality and with death? How do they prepare perhaps even without their pastor? I think it's interesting to kind of pause and compare this to our own situation, right? Where I know that my church back in Colorado just canceled services for at least eight weeks. Um, here in Scotland, the the diocese have pretty much all banned um, banned public meetings for church, and this was a similar, uh, I mean, a similar but much magnified experience in medieval Europe. Uh, where you would you would have just whole towns dying off, and so the place that they usually went for comfort, um, for guidance, was suddenly not as available, and the church had to figure out how to help people address these fears, um, how to help them prepare for a good Christian death, even if their their pastor or the priest couldn't be with them. So this gave rise to several forms of art that were kind of aimed at that that goal, which was to help help people handle this death, this fear of death. And uh, one particularly um, popular one was a book called The Ars Moriendi, or The Art of Dying, uh, which was published in 1415 and then in 1450, uh, first the longer and then a shorter version. Uh, the shorter version was put onto wood carvings, which were then shared all around, um, oftentimes in little books. It was a widespread thing that was very popular. Um, so that it was made, pop made available to many people. So thinking of this being written in 1415, 1450, this is right within that century in which all of this is taking place. 
And the Ars Moriendi was a, it was a book with illustrations, so it was both for those who could read and those who couldn't, um, aiming at helping them not be afraid of dying. So I'm going to give you an outline of the long version, which was the first chapter explains that death and dying has a good side, that it serves and it serves to console the dying man, that death is not something to be afraid of, especially as a Christian. The second chapter outlines the five temptations that beset a dying man and how to avoid them, which are a lack of faith, despair, impatience, spiritual pride, and avarice. The third chapter lists the seven questions to ask a dying man, along with the consolation available to him through the redemptive powers of Christ's love. The fourth, chap fourth chapter expresses the need to imitate Christ's life. The fifth chapter addresses the friends and family, outlining the general rules of behavior at the deathbed. And the sixth chapter includes appropriate prayers to be said for a dying man. So this was really, it was a pastoral tool that was written to help ordinary people, whether or not a priest was there, kind of know how to face death um, well, uh, how to face it with bravery, how what to do. I think that's something that people feel now, even as, as they're not in church and as they don't have the normal guidance and everything that they would. What do you do in these situations? And this was given as kind of a, if you find yourself in this position, here is something you can cling to and work through and, and approach death as not a frightening thing, but kind of know what to do in the face of it. And I think that's a really interesting thing to think about in our current world, because before these weeks, when we've all been focused on mortality rates and um, symptoms and all these things, we're pretty guarded, actually, in the modern West from from death. We kind of don't think about it. It's, um, you know, when, when people get older, we put them in homes where we don't have to see the slow dying of old age. Um, people are kind of isolated and taken away. We don't know how to handle or deal with death. Whereas in this in this time period, it was so prevalent um, that that they they had to be given a pastoral tool to know how to face it well. And of course, it's funny for me to say it was so prevalent, right? Because death is not something which is more or less prevalent. We will all die. There's a 100% mortality rate for all humans. Um, but somehow we've forgotten that in the West. And so we are less aware of it all the time and we're less confronted by it. But I wonder if in some ways that that also means that we're less prepared for it. So another version of this kind of art um, that arose as, as a way of coping with this huge upset that was the plagues was the dance macabre which is the dance of death which uh, the first instance of it is in 1424 so again early in that 15th century um, when one of another wave of the the plagues came through and in this dan um, it's actually a visual image so a lot of these weren't aimed necessarily at people who could read they were aimed at anyone who could see so these would often be on, on tombstones and um, or in in chapels sometimes and with the dance macabre, it was usually a visual presentation and then was used in music later. Um, the dance of death. Death is personified as someone who comes to take away the dead man. And, um, but in, in these pictures, death comes to a rich man, to a king, to a poor man, to women, to men, to children. The point being that, um, that we will all dance in the dance of death. There, death is, does not look to the rich or the poor. It doesn't make separations between the smart and the stupid. Um, it is something that is common to all of us. And so everyone joins the dance of death. And, and this was kind of, again, really in, in many ways, just to remind us of, um, of the fact that we will all face mortality.
So these are two other kinds of um, bits of art that began out of this, the dance macabre, which was usually visual and depicting all different classes of people joining in the dance of death, reminding us that we are all bound for the grave, that we all need salvation. And then um, the Ars Moriendi, which was this beautiful either long or shorter book that was aimed at helping people reckon um, with, with their mortality and, and how to face death well, and, and really how to face death in the hope that Christianity offers us. So that leads us to mortality plays. Not mortality plays, morality plays. <laughs> there is a slip of the tongue. Now, these rose out of the same kind of milieu as, as the Dance Macabre and as the Ars Moriendi. And similarly to these other ones, the thing that's unique about it is that they aimed at, um, they were pastoral in the sense that they wanted to help people approach death and they wanted to help them approach it in a Christian way. They were pastoral, but they were secular, by which I mean they weren't pastoral things which took place in the kind of authoritative auspices of the church. So what's unique about morality plays is they were often written by priests and often performed by priests, but usually in a, in a context that wasn't purely liturgical. It wasn't just you were going to your church for a service. It was something that was a part of, um, of local festivals, something that was kind of more like a folk play than it was something we would think of as churchy. Now, when I was researching this, uh, I was in Oxford last year, and there is a mighty massive volume in the Bodleian Library that really has all things true and interesting about uh, morality plays. And so I will read to you a bit of, um, of what is said about morality plays there. David Bevington, who wrote Medieval Drama, which is, is the, the piece that you should read if you, if you want to read about morality plays, defines morality plays as the dramatization of a spiritual crisis in the life of a representative mankind figure in which his spiritual struggle is portrayed as a conflict between personified abstractions representing good and evil. Now, I will pause and unpack this because it is a very kind of dense definition. So what it is, is it is, it is a drama. So it's literally, usually, um, it is a play meant to be performed, um, in which we watch a spiritual crisis in the life of a figure who's meant to represent all of mankind, but more particularly, um, is meant to represent the Christian. So it is a specific person who represents all of our own spiritual crises, something that we can all relate to. And the spiritual crisis is then portrayed as a conflict between, usually, virtues and vices. So to put this more specifically though, usually um, the spiritual crisis is that the main character knows they're going to die, and they want to prepare to die a good death, and then they go through a battle in which um, virtues help them fight against their vices, or vices fight against the virtues. And if the virtues win, they prepare for death well, and if they don't, then they prepare for death um, in fear. This is based out of something called the psychomachia, so that kind of struggle between the embodied virtues and the embodied vices, by which I mean, you're not just going to say he was trying really hard to be hopeful, um, but he was struggling with despair. Instead of that, you see these two things, virt uh, the virtue of hope and despair, embodied. So there'll be a character called hope and a character called despair, and they will either actually do battle or, or, or they'll argue against each other, and this will become kind of a, a picture to us of, of them, of whether or not this battle will be won for the main character. So this idea of, of the virtues and vices being embodied actually comes from the psychomachia. 
uh, which is a play written by Prudentius, who was an early Christian, uh, well, an early-ish Christian in the 5th century. Uh, you may know some of Prudentius's other work because he's, he has a very famous hymn that we usually sing around um, Christmas, or at least in Advent, which is, Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silent. So if you know, Let all mortal flesh keep silent, and in fear and trembling speak, that is Prudentius. So that fellow, early Christian, also wrote the Psychobachia, which is um, in which a Christian battles for his soul against vices aided by the embodied virtues. Um, so it's thought that this this fifth century narrative poem is kind of the basis for morality plays. Um, and also the first morality play uh, was written actually quite before the, um, uh, quite a bit before the plagues um, by one of my favorite people, Hildegard of Bingen. Bingen. She wrote the Order Virtuitum, um, and she was in the 12th century, I believe. Uh, she is marvelous, and I really should do a podcast on her at some point. She was um, one of our first people who wrote in, in the Western world about medical sciences. She composed music. She was um, functionally the confessor for a whole bunch of cardinals of the Catholic Church. She predicted the Reformation. Um, she she was a midwife. She's amazing. Anyway, she also happened to write the first morality play in the 12th century um, in which someone body, uh, embattles for their soul uh, with, with the help of embodied virtues. Uh, but then this is really picked up again in the 15th and 16th century, particularly so in the 1400s and 1500s. And it takes on this new kind of uh, role where it's not just an abstract struggle, but this, this battle for their soul comes about as a result of an encounter with death. So you have, you can kind of see this development. It starts with this poem by Prudentius where a Christian is um, battling against the vices with embodied virtues. And then you see that Hildegard makes this into a play that can be performed, turns the poem into a play. And then, as everyone has death on their minds in the 15th century because of the plagues, then this takes on this new character of it's not just a Christian battling against vices and virtues, but they're battling um, against, against vices because they're preparing for their death. So that leads us to kind of the, the core of what an actual morality play is. Now, to kind of dive into one of these, I'm going to use the example of one, which is called the everyman, and we'll look at some kind of common characteristics that tend to be in most of the morality plays. And that has to do with the characters that are always in the morality plays and the structure of the play itself. Now, I should say that everyman is a really good one because it's very clear and it shows the structure, um, but everyman is very earnest and very serious. But the thing that's funny about a lot of these is that many of them aren't. Many of them are funny, sometimes a little bit irreverent, um, and, and they don't always end well. So with, with every man, we have this sense that we're, we're pretty confident that he dies in a good place, that um, he dies in a state of grace, having accepted Christ's sacrifice and, and living under baptism. Um, but there are other morality plays in which the person loses the battle with the vices and virtues. Um, and other ones that are played more for laughs. And I don't think those, the ones that are played more for laughs are meant to um, to not be serious, they're not meant to not teach, but it was just taking kind of a different, a different tact. So when these were actually performed, they were usually very, um, they, they weren't like we think of going to the theater. It wasn't like you'd go and you'd sit and you'd watch the nice, you know, the curtains would open, they'd close. They were oftentimes very participative, um, 
the players would stand in the middle of the audience and pull them up and make them do things. Uh, because the whole idea through these, they were pastoral. They were meant to try to help people get these ideas into their hearts. Uh, and they did that by kind of inviting them into the narrative. There's a wonderful, if you are the scholarly sort of person, there's a great chapter on this, on the Jesuit morality plays. Uh, so the plays that were written and performed by the Jesuits, um, the order um, of, of monks in the line of St. Ignatius of Loyola. Um, there's a wonderful chapter about this in Jennifer Hurt's book, um, Putting on Virtues. And it's all about how the idea was that we watch and then we imitate. So go look that up if you want to. Um, but all that to say that these, these were meant to kind of be plays that everyone watched, but then they participated in, and then through imitation, they could also uh, grow in virtue. So we're going to dive into um, this particular uh, work, this particular morality play, to see what the kind of common features of, of a morality play were. So generally speaking, we'll, we'll start by talking about how there's three primary narrative moments in every morality tale. And that's this, there's death visiting, the second is the psychomachia, or the battle for the soul. And the final scene is, is death's retrieval of the everyman. So let's kind of talk through that um, with reference to the everyman, um, this, this particular um, play as an example. And I'll put in some links in, when I type up the show notes, which may be in a little while, um, for some books that you can get if you wanted to read a few of these. There's some good collections. So, in the example of the everyman, the play opens with, with what I read you before, uh, which is God sending death to show the everyman, in my name, this is a quote, a pilgrimage he must on him take, which he no wise made escape, and that he bring him a sure reckoning. So this is God sending death to visit everyman, and just to kind of let everyman know that he will have to go in this pilgrimage, uh, by which he means he will have to eventually die, and that in his death he will then have to have a reckoning for everything he has lived with. Um, but so when death does this, he relays, this is the first moment, the death visit to the everyman. He relays this message, and the every, everyman responds that he is full unready such a reckoning to give, and requests more time to prepare to greet death. So this kind of commences uh, the second narrative phase, which is where everyman does um, battle for his soul so that he can prepare to greet death. And, and in this, we see then the psychomachia. So this battle in which the vices are both embodied and so are the virtues. Um, so for every man, he calls on virtues to help him. So he calls on kindred. Well, he thinks they're virtues, actually. Kindred, cousin, and goods. So these are all kind of embodied things he thinks are going to help him. But they all prove to be false friends. So he realizes that um, when it comes to dying, your, your friends, your family, and your goods in the world will not make you right before God. These are not actually things that will help you. So they actually become vices when you lean on them because they they symbolize you you kind of trying to work your way to heaven and not not pleasing choosing the things that actually will help you. So then he eventually encounters good deeds, knowledge, confession, beauty, strength, and discretion. So all of these are actually characters. Um, and then the five wits. And all of these are kind of the embodied virtues. And these newfound friends give him advice, they give him strength and guidance, and they help him conquer the vices. Uh, and then they eventually help him receive the sacraments of baptism and the Eucharist. And they walk with him to approach in his final encounter with death, hoping that he will have, have kind of prepared his soul to meet God. Um, and these virtues follow him, literally, because they're characters, as far as they can. 
but ultimately leave him to face God's judgment alone. And only good deeds um, uh, accompanies him to his final breath. And it's really amusing because there's this scene in Everyman where um, we think that could sound very much like he's justified by his own good deeds. But there's a scene where good deeds is literally laying on the ground. And she says to him, every man, I can't get up for your own good deeds are as worthless as, you know, a dead body, basically. Uh, but then he goes to the waters of baptism. And once he's baptized, then um, good deeds is energized. And she stands up and she's like, okay, now I can actually go with you. Because through the, through the rent, um, you know, through baptism, when you've been saved by Christ, washed by his blood and washed and visited by the Holy Spirit, that enlivens and literally makes good works possible. So I love that. It's a very visual example of, it's not that we're saved by good works, but that in baptism and in the Holy Spirit, that like enlivens and makes good works possible. So that's a fun visual image that it gives us. So he walks um, through baptism and with good deeds, and that accompanies to him to his final breath, which initiates the final stage of the morality play. Death comes for the second time to claim his prize. But for every man, we feel pretty confident because having conquered his vices with the help of the embodied virtues, having been washed in the waters of baptism, every man then ends his earthly journey with a paraphrase of the words of Jesus. And he says, Into thy hands, Lord, my soul I commend. Receive it, Lord, that it not be lost. And then death sweeps the every man off stage, and we, the audience, are left to hope for his redemption and pray for our own. So that's, that is kind of the narrative arc of a of a morality play. You have these three moments, death's visit, the psychomachia, where he battles for his soul with the embodied virtues and vices, and then finally death comes to retrieve the everyman and kind of um, say one way or another, although it leaves it a mystery, if if he has approached death as, as a good Christian rooted in the resurrection, having tried to live a holy life. Um, so this also relates to kind of the cast of characters that you almost always see in a morality play. Uh, which is the bare bones. So you have, first of all, death. And this is interesting because death is depicted not as an event, but as an actual character. So just as in the dance macabre, where you have death kind of dancing along, grabbing kings and this and that, death is, is depicted as a character uh, who comes um, comes for the everyman. And um, the other thing that's interesting about death is that death is not depicted as either good or evil. Um, in every man, death is, is simply powerful. He's called death, the mighty messenger. And the reason that I think death is neutral is that the point is meant to kind of be, if you are a Christian, if you live a good life, you have nothing to fear of death. Death is not in this life an enemy to you because, um, you will go to be with God. But on the other hand, if you if you have not lived, if not given your life to God, if you've not been baptized, if you've not kind of settled your soul uh, before death visits, then death becomes an enemy or fearful. Um, and what's interesting in, in in the Everyman is that throughout throughout the story, death actually becomes more and more sympathetic to and acts more like a friend to Everyman as he becomes more and more um, more and more good in some sense. There's a there's a writer who says. Uh, G.A. Lester writes that death is so undeathlike as to so show signs of emotional involvement, a desire to see every man escape judgment and receive redemption. Redemption. So death is a character, but he's not really the villain. He's kind of this ambiguous character who can be either um, an enemy or a friend, depending on if if every man is prepared. So that's one character. The second character we have is 
is the everyman. And it's interesting. I love, there's different names different people give him. Um, E.D. Cauley calls this character the microcosm man because everyman is never merely our allegorical, right? So while we have the virtues and vices, they seem like they're kind of allegories like you might find in Pilgrim's Progress of vices or virtues or good things or bad things. But we get the sense that, that mankind or every man or whatever he's called, he's given lots of different names, he is meant to be a representative, um, Bevington writes, a representative individual Christian rather than a collective history of all men, uh, all men and women. So he is a particular person, but who is representative of all of us we can all identi identify with. Um, so that's the, the other character. So we have the embodiment of death as a character. Uh, the everyman, or he's given different names. So it's always something like everyman or mankind or kind of some name that indicates his connection to all people. And then we have the characters of the embodied vices and virtues. And that's pretty much present in, in all of um, the morality plays. So they could be more than that. So you could have more characters, uh, you could have more plot points, but they're never less than that. That's kind of the skeleton of the morality play, is the three narrative moments, Death's Visit, the Psychomachia, and the claiming of the man, of the everyman, um, and then the three kind of sets of characters, so Death, the everyman, and then the vices or virtues. So what was really the point of these plays? Because there were there were dozens of them, um, and they all kind of followed this, this form. What, why were they created? I think there's kind of three answers to that. The first is that they wanted to remind people that they will die and help them to dwell on that, not dwell on it, but help them to reckon with that reality in a way um, that is both Christian and brave. So we can all be reminded of this um, by something that happened a few weeks ago, Ash Wednesday. So Ash Wednesday, which is the beginning of the 40 days leading up to Easter, uh, many Christians go to a service um, where they are marked with a cross on their forehead and the priest or the pastor says, from dust you came and to dust you shall return. Repent from your sins and follow Christ. That's what um, at my church they did. And, and this is to remind us of the cross, right? That Christ had to die, that all of us too will die, but that we don't face that alone. So it's really, it's just telling a true thing about reality. And I think for people in medieval era, this was so prevalent because of the plagues that it was just kind of telling them the truth in a way that relieved them and, and gave a sense of context and meaning, um, that they didn't have to be afraid because this, this, this is the common destiny of all humankind, but that we are sheltered in the reality of the church. So this was, that was the first thing, was simply just to reckon with mortality, to reckon with the fact that we will die and that this, will sh this should shape how we live our lives, that we should live mindfully um, in, in light of our own limited existences. The second purpose, which was related to that, was to remind them that they will be held accountable to God for the lives that they lived, which means preparing for a good death. Um, it makes me think of a, of a parable in Luke, which I remember when I read it in college just stopped me in my tracks. So this is in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, and it's called the Parable of the Rich Fool. He told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest, and he thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I'll store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, You have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. 
Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be for whoever stores up things for himself, but is not rich towards God. There's something that's always been very striking to me about the line, this very night, your life or your soul, um, I think the translation I like better actually says your soul will be demanded of you. Um, and I think that's kind of the attitude that's meant to be brought about by these morality plays. It's to remind you that yes, you will die. And part two is that that comes with it, this kind of demand of what life will you have lived? What state will you be in to greet, to meet God? Um, at any moment. And it kind of helps you be accountable and be prepared for that moment to live well and to be, as this parable says, to not be someone who is rich in grain, but poor towards God. But the final thing that it's really meant to do is it's meant to teach Christians to not be afraid of death. I think one of the great tragedies of medieval plagues was that many people feared dying alone, not dying with their priest. And in doing that, there was this real kind of vulnerability of how do I face this? How do I face this alone and, and not afraid? And one of the things that's really moving about many of the morality plays is it kind of gives room for the main character, for every man or mankind, to voice the fear that that brings about and to kind of give room for someone to experience it and for us to imagine and let ourselves in kind of the space confine of, the safe confine of, of, of fiction, so to speak, um, to feel that fear and the weightiness of that. Um, but ultimately, they're all, they're all hopeful. They, they remind Christians, these, these plays remind Christians that we needn't be afraid of death. And the justification for not being afraid of death is not just everyone does it, you'll be okay. Um, but it's that Christ has done it and risen again. And that because of that, ultimately, the power of death is taken away. That death will never have the final word. Um, that there is something that we can hope in. And that's why it's so important that usually the everyman goes through this process of, of baptism and the Eucharist before they die, because it's this preparing for the life that transcends um, physical death. It makes me think of 1 Corinthians 15, which is where Paul is writing in, in the first century, of course, to all the, the early Christians. And um, he's writing to them because many people have been saying that maybe Christ didn't rise from the dead and that Christians are just kind of people who follow the good teachings of Christ. Um, and he says to them rather sensibly, he says, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then even Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. More than that, we are all found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But if he did not raise him, in fact, the dead are not raised. And if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, then we are of all men most to be pitied. I've always loved this passage because... Um, it really puts into stark realization what what the Christian hope is, which is uh, Paul is, is basically making room for the reality that death is terrible and it feels foreign and strange and, and like a great offense to us. And have you ever thought about how strange it is that it feels like such an offense to us since it's what happens to every single person? Um, but, but he's saying that's that line where he says, if Christ has not been risen, then all of those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. 
And that's the great fear of death, isn't it? That we'll be lost or that the people we love will be lost. Um, and, and he's saying, no, this is the very reason, this is, the resurrection is the very kind of linchpin of the Christian faith because it's saying that Christ has been raised and that in Christ we too will be raised and that thus we won't be lost, that death does not have the final word. And so he goes on and he says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. As in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, and then, when he comes, those who belong to him. So it's saying that Christ's resurrection, um, you know, the, the hundreds of people that saw Christ after he rose from the dead, this is the promise, this is the thing that we hold on to, the firstfruits of a large harvest of the resurrection that we will all be a part of. And he says, he ends the passage saying, When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, for he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Something I love about this, and I wonder if it is partially what the morality plays are drawing on, is here... Paul addresses death like a person, just like in the morality plays. He says to death, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? It's treated like this force or this character in human life, um, which is very similar to how the morality tales talk about it. Um, But in this, we see that what he says is that the victory of death, which it seems ultimately like in the dance macabre, all people must die. But that victory is not a final victory. The victory of death will be taken away and its sting will be stolen because Christ's resurrection ensures for us um, our own resurrection, that he is the first fruits of all of us. And so that's, that's the hope that the Christian faith rests upon. And it's really interesting, of course, too, because this is kind of the foundation of what Christians preached um, in the early church, that Christ, that Christ was Lord, that he died and rose again. And this is, this is the rootedness. This is where ultimately the morality plays kind of draw their hope. Is they say, like Paul, that we're all going to die, that many have fallen asleep in Christ, but that that is not the final word on human life, that we can approach death without fear because Christ has risen and we will rise with Christ one day. And so I love, I love that the everyman ends with these words that I read to you before that really are very similar to Paul's word where he says, where he talks about those sleeping in Christ being lost. Every man ends this play in, in hope, um, ending, ending the whole experience saying, into thy hands, Lord, my soul, I commend, receive it, that it not be lost. And so this is ultimately the hope of the morality play is that we can approach death without fear because our souls will not be lost because they are hidden in Christ. At the heart of it, the morality plays are about communal exemplification, that we imitate Christ, and in that we are, are rescued by him. And the, uh, just as we are watching the everyman kind of do battle with his virtues and vices, the audience is invited to also do battle with their virtues and vices, to imitate Christ as someone else imitates Christ. And in this, we all prepare for a good death. 
Now we're near the end, but I did promise you a reference to a morality play showing up in the modern world. So very quickly, I'm going to tell you about how Harry Potter uses the form of a morality play. Now, generally speaking, if we remember the, um, the overarching um, kind of themes that always make up a morality play, it's the three moments and the characters. We see the three moments in the Harry Potter um, kind of arc of the entire um, story, right? At the very beginning, death visits Harry, right? That he is the child who has a death curse cast on him, um, but somehow it doesn't work. And so this is kind of the death visiting. Um, but we always have this sense, and there's a prophecy, and over and over again, we have this sense that once again, Harry and Voldemort will meet, ultimately, Harry, this death figure, who's very much, Voldemort's always dressed very much like death is in the Dance Macabre, and and in the morality play. So this commissions then his Psychomachia, which is Harry becoming brave through the help of his friends. And I think there's a lot to be said, and I could say so much more. I might put up um, my paper on this in the Patreon again, um, but about the different ways in which his friends and his mentors, um, Dumbledore and Hagrid and all these different people embody these virtues, and they help him become brave, learn how to sacrifice himself um, when it comes to his final meeting with Voldemort. And if you haven't read it, I don't want to give too much away, but I will say that we have this final initiation of death, this figure of Voldemort coming to claim his prize in the final scene. There's also a lot to be said for um, the tale of the three brothers, which ultimately gives Harry the key to the Deathly Hallows, um, as actually being a morality play, right? Because we literally have death embodied visiting three people. There's two of the characters lose their life to death because of their loss, because of their vices, so because of their pride or their, their despair, which is very much a part of morality play. Um, but then the good everyman uh, manages to win. He, through being humble and being clever, evades death until he greets death as a friend and through his own death actually protects someone else. So that's also this very kind of discreet morality um, play in itself. But as we conclude this week's episode, I want to draw us back to this idea of the psychomachia um, in Harry Potter and how most of the series focuses on him preparing to greet Voldemort, prefer preparing to possibly greet his death, and the way that these various characters kind of help him to do that. Because I think that this is the picture of the Christian life, that we become each other's embodied virtues and vices, helping each other become brave and good, preparing for our own eventual death. So characters in Harry Potter like Dumbledore and Sirius and Remus, and most fundamentally his mother, Lily, become for Harry this embodiment of love and bravery and self-sacrifice, protecting him on his journey towards death, but also teaching him the Ars Moriendi, the art of dying. Harry's journey as a character is not of the lonely hero, but one of progressive integration into community, into a community of love. So he goes from this original stance as a lonely, isolated, idealized orphan. Um, but this integration propels him as he becomes more and more loved and knows himself to be loved. It propels him to be one who is less afraid of death um, and more devoted to love. Because he is so fully loved and capable of loving, he is able um, to stand at the gate of death, willing to face death for his friends. This is sharply contrasted with Voldemort, who near the end of his series is consumed with the suspicion of his followers, lashing out and murdering his most trusted advisors. Voldemort seeks to gain power over death by killing those who love him, while Harry systematically lays down his own power, willing to greet death for the sake of those who love him. The more strongly Harry is attuned to love, the more bravely he walks towards death. 
and the more desperately that Voldemort clings to power, the more vulnerable he becomes. The importance of this kind of communal exemplification of love as they are embodiments of these virtues that teach him how to face death is beautifully illustrated in a scene, um, and here I'm going to pause and say this is going to be a total spoiler, so if you have not read Harry Potter, pause now, go read it, and then finish this episode. Got it? Okay, now that I've said that. This importance of communal exemplification is beautifully illustrated in the scene immediately preceding Harry's death where he uses the resurrection stone to call back his loved ones. So I'm going to read you this section from it. This is his mother. You've been so brave. He could not speak. His eyes feasted on her, and though he thought he would like to stand and look at her forever, and that would be enough. You're nearly there, said James. Very close. We are so proud of you. Does it hurt? The childish question had fallen from Harry's lips before he could stop it. Dying? Not at all, said Sirius, quicker and easier than falling asleep. And he will want it to be quick. He wants it over, said Lupin. A chilly breeze seemed to emanate from the heart of the forest, lifted the hair at Harry's brow. He knew that they would not tell him to go. It would have to be his decision. You'll stay with me until the very end, said Jane. So to me, this is this beautiful image of uh, his friends, his mentors, his parents, being the embodied virtues that walk with him, just like every man had his embodied virtues, that walk with him to death, that teach him to not be afraid. And this, I think, is a good way to end the episode, which is to think about how in each other's lives we might um, learn, like the everyman, to remember that we will die, that we should live good lives in light of that, so that we might be prepared to face death, not afraid because we're rooted in the resurrection. But also to think about how, as we are living those good lives, we might become for each other the embodied virtues that help each other pre prepare for death well. I think in many ways, this whole coronavirus has been one giant memento mori. We've all remembered that we are less in control than we think we are, and that death may not be as far off as we think it is. But perhaps this is not just a frightening thing. Perhaps like the morality plays, we can learn to be mindful of our deaths but to live good lives and to root ourselves in the hope of the resurrection. Well, friends, that's all for today. I promise that the rest of my podcasts will not all be about the plague, but I do hope that you enjoyed this week's episode. If you enjoyed it, please go leave a rating and review on iTunes, and I'll catch you around here soon on Speaking with Joy.